This is the Wavemaker Conversations podcast. I'm Michael Shoulder, and as this conversation begins, we are in the first week of the sentencing phase in the trial of the convicted Boston Marathon bomber, Joker Tsarnaev. And at this very moment in courtroom nine of the federal courthouse in Boston, prosecutors are calling witnesses who are describing the losses they suffered on that April marathon day in Boston of 2013. Many of us have been immersed in the details. For this episode, we're going to take a step back. We're going to examine the sentencing phase of this trial through a thoroughly different set of lenses. And the name of this episode is Jesus on Death Row. Joining me now is the author of the book by that name, Mark Osler. Mark, I've known Mark for years. He's a graduate of Yale Law School, a former prosecutor, a professor of law who taught at Baylor University in Texas and now at the University of St. Thomas Law School um, in Minnesota. Uh, Mark, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Thank you for having me. And uh, uh, Mark, uh, join, joining Mark from Chicago uh, is... Uh, a public defender named Gene Cook, uh, Cook County public defender. If empathy could be measured, uh, I'm not sure you could find anybody with more empathy for the survivors and the family members of the victims uh, of the Boston Marathon bombings than Gene Bishop. Uh, 25 years ago, Gene's sister Nancy was murdered, and Gene Bishop has just written a book about her 25-year journey called Change of Heart, Justice, Mercy, and Making Peace with my sister's killer. So, Jean uh, from Chicago, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. Nice to be with you. Uh, Mark, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and what I would like to know from both of you is, through your particular set of lenses, um, what is it that you see in the Boston Marathon bombing trial, particularly the sentencing phase? What is it that you look for? And, Mark, how does your experience examining the process of the sentencing phase and the trial of Jesus of Nazareth inform what you see in Boston now? Yeah, one of the things that the gospel accounts of, of Jesus' trial really brings to the surface is the raw emotionality of it. Um, you know, there we have a prosecutor, uh, Caiaphas, who is said to have, have torn his clothes when the when the witnesses were disagreeing with one another. But that raw emotionalism is present here, too. We see it in the way that the, the prosecutor uh, made her opening statement. And the, the kind of things she chose to talk about, about the, you know, showing a picture of the defendant, um, you know, making an obscene gesture. And then we also see it in what we've read about uh, the, the statements made publicly by victims and victims' family members um, that are going to become a part of the sentencing phase, that those witnesses and their take on things are, are going to be different from one another. They are going to uh, pull it across purposes. And again, that's something that we saw uh, in, the, in the trial of Christ. And uh, Jean, Jean, in terms of uh, what you're noticing, uh, what's, what's resonating with you? You know, what resonates with me as a family member of three murder victims is that this um, search for justice, for something as momentous as this terrible attack, not only on individuals, but on this beloved institution of the, the Boston Marathon, it seemed to be an attack on the entire city itself. And you see the whole city kind of gathering around. And yet, you know, from my perspective, you know, the, the notion that killing this young man, uh, Joker Sarnayev, would somehow heal everyone is, is such an elusive thing that 
what what they're searching for, I think, is something as majestic and, and momentous and, and grave as, as a human life and all that human suffering. But you'll see from the comments of so many of the victims' family members that they see already that that, that is not the way forward for them. And, and I'm, we want to talk about your way forward uh, in a few minutes. Uh, and, and I just want to take a, a step back again and and... And, and let the audience know that the two of you have basically taken uh, the premise of this book and mark your exploration of the process by which Jesus was sentenced to death. And you've taken it on the road over a number of years to churches all across the country. And Mark, in that you play the prosecutor and Gene, you play the defense attorney. So Mark, as the prosecutor, just let's go back again almost 2000 years. And how do you convince a jury, and have you ever convinced a jury in a church to sentence Jesus to death for the crimes he committed under current state law, whatever state you're taking this to? Um, there's a couple times we split them into to many juries. The audience is broken into groups of 12, and uh, at least on one instance, I, I have one. So, um, you know, given the jury selection that you're in a church, it's uh it's a, an unusual outcome. And what just make that case for me. What did you say to the jury to convince anyone to sentence Jesus to death? Well, I do the same thing that the prosecutor is doing in the case in Boston right now. And that is that I, I try to emphasize the things that are most threatening about, about Jesus. You know, what the effect is going to be on national security if we literally turn the other cheek when we're threatened. What's going to happen to an economy if the money is given to the poor by those who have businesses? Um, what what about families? I mean, one of the things that Jesus said was, uh, you know, leave your father and your mother and your brothers and come follow me. Um, and so I'm able to talk about how this person represents a threat to things that culturally we hold most dear. Um, and that's not that different than what we're seeing in Boston, where the defendant is being presented as someone who's not just a threat from the past, but someone who has the potential to be a threat in the future. And and yet there are certainly people who support the death penalty who say, look, we know he won't be a threat in the future if he is in jail for the rest of his life. Although some people say he still might be if he can make a phone call, if he can be sort of a, you know, a, a, a living example uh, for, for people who might follow him. But right. uh, for those who say, no, he won't be a threat, we still feel that justice will be better served killing him. Is there a parallel there from the time of Jesus? Yes, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, what what we saw, the discussion that precedes the decision to execute Jesus, um, was not just about you know, the threat in the future, but, but what he had done, the threat that he'd been. And that's why, uh, you know, in the that we see the pursuit the way that it was, the fact of a violent arrest, um, that, that at each of the steps that they took, it wasn't just a fear of a future. It was, it was also a sense of punishment for things that had been done uh, in, in the past. Okay, and, go, and going to Eugene, so you know, next week on Monday, I believe, uh, the defense is planning to take over uh, the argument to spare Tsarnaev's life. Uh, you play the role of Jesus' defense attorney in this exercise that you guys take around the country. What would you say to spare Tsarnaev's life? Uh, what do you say in the trial of Jesus when you go through that exercise to spare his life? When I talk about uh, 
sparing his life in the context of the trial of Jesus, I speak mostly about the goodness that, that this man had done, that he was not about hurting people, but rather healing, curing the sick, helping the lame to walk, helping the blind to see, feeding hungry people. And that he did that not just for people who would be considered his own people, but also did that for people who would be considered his enemies. He healed the one of the people who came to arrest him. He healed um, the servant of a centurion who worked for Rome, the, the occupier of his country, the ones that had the power of life and death over him. And so I talk about goodness. And in the... Sarnayev trial, if, if I were the defense attorney, I would talk not just about him. And, you know, I know we've heard the theory floated that, you know, he was under the sway of his older brother. He himself was not that bad. Rather than relying entirely on that, I would speak about the victims and who they were and what their lives were about and how ultimately it doesn't honor their lives, but rather dishonors them by killing again in their names, by digging another grave, by shedding more blood, that that does nothing to um, act as a proper memorial to those who have suffered so much. And obviously the first part of your argument in the Jesus trial is something that you cannot apply in this case uh, because Sarnayev has not been a healer and, and he does not have that, that same history on the contrary. Uh, but, but this latter thing, I mean, you are in many ways uniquely qualified to speak to. So tell me if, if we could pause and hear your personal story. And while I hate for you to relive it again, you've just relived it uh, in this long writing assignment that you took on, this new book of yours, Change of Heart. So if you could just share your personal story and why you feel so strongly that the death penalty is actually not in the interests of the family members of the victims. Right. 25 years ago, uh, this April, my younger sister, Nancy, who was 25 years old, and her husband, Richard, were murdered in their home by a juvenile. Uh, Nancy was three months pregnant at the time. So I also lost my little niece or nephew on that night. And this 16-year-old who murdered them was not eligible for the death penalty under Illinois law. This happened in Winnetka, Illinois. And so when he was sentenced to the mandatory sentence that he did receive, which was life in prison without the possibility of parole, which is what the defense is arguing for in the Sarnayev case. Um, The press asked us, aren't you disappointed he didn't get the death penalty? And what I said then was that rather than being disappointed, I was relieved because that wouldn't bring Nancy and Richard back. It wouldn't heal me. What it would do, in fact, is drag me closer to who the killer was and away from who Nancy and Richard were. And that's not how I wanted to honor their lives. And and you took a journey to what you call forgiveness. And when we hear that word forgiveness in this context, it's almost, it's very hard for most of us to grasp. So, so tell us what you specifically did over the years, these 25 years to get to the point where you are at now. At first, I forgave him in my own mind and heart, not explicitly to him, because he had denied responsibility for the crime. He never showed any remorse or or asked for forgiveness. So my forgiveness is really for God and for Nancy and for myself. They say that hating another person is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And I didn't want to, to do that. And so I went for decades, you know, working against the death penalty and, you know, trying to do things in, you know, in honor of my sister and and her husband. And then I met 
the Mark Osler, the law professor that is talking with us right now. And he gave me a book, two books, actually. One was Jesus on Death Row, this wonderful book that, you know, compares the arrest and trial and execution of Jesus to modern criminal law. And then he gave me a book in which his Baylor colleague, Randall O'Brien, had written about forgiveness and reconciliation, and that forgiveness also is about this other person. It's about the perpetrator. And that's what caused me to reach out to my sister's killer, to write to him, and then finally to visit him. And you actually visited him, and would you like to describe that meeting for us and and the impact it's had on you? Yes, I write about this in my book. It was profoundly healing to meet with him for two reasons. One, I got to hear answers to so many questions I had about Nancy's last night on Earth. And he was brave enough to answer those questions. And it also allowed me to give what the victims' families are doing right now in Boston, and that is giving my victim impact statement, telling him, this is how your actions affected me, my mother, my father, everyone who knew and loved Nancy and Richard. It's so important. So now what I want to do is I want to read from a Boston Globe piece, because in recent days, and I know you you both are aware of this, in recent days, uh, some of the family members of the victims, really victims themselves, uh, have come out and, and issued a wide variety of statements with a very diverse range of opinions on the death penalty in this case. And so I'm just going to read from this piece for those who haven't been following it uh, as closely as many of the people in Boston have. So first from Bill and Denise Richard. And then, and then by the way, Mark, I'm going to go to you first for reaction to this. But I want to give people a real, a real sense of the, the nuance and texture in these, in these statements. Bill and Denise Richard, the parents of Martin Richard, who was eight years old when he was killed by the bomb detonated by Tsarnaev, wrote a public letter to urge the government to drop its pursuit of the death penalty. The Richards, whose daughter Jane lost a leg in the bombing, said they would prefer to see Tsarnaev, quote, spending the rest of his life in prison without any possibility of release, waiving all, all of his rights to appeal. Continuing the quote, this is a deeply personal issue. We can speak only for ourselves. However, it's clear, and this sort of gets to Gene's point, that peace of mind was taken not just from us, but from all Americans. We honor those who were lost and, and wish continued strength for all those who were injured. We believe that now is the time to turn the page and the anguish and look toward a better future for us, for Boston, for the country. So that point of view is, boy, if, if we, it's, it's, not, it's not that fundamental death penalty is wrong, but we can't move on and heal if we're consumed by this for the next 10, 20 years of appeals. Uh, and let me just, before we, we go to you, Jennifer Lemmerman, uh, the sister of Sean Collier, the MIT police officer who was shot to death while he sat in his patrol car a few nights after the bombing. Again, this is from the Boston Globe, uh, said, whenever someone speaks out against the death penalty, they are challenged to imagine how they would feel if someone they love were killed. I've been given that horrible perspective, and I can say that my position has only strengthened. So a death penalty opponent at the core. Uh, a couple of other quotes. Kevin Corcoran, whose wife Celeste, and I'm, again, I'm reading from the Boston Globe, uh, lost both legs and whose daughter Sydney was seriously injured, said he does not believe 
that a life sentence would spare any pain for Tsarnaev's victims. Quote, if he's dead, no matter how long it takes, end of story. We don't want him to be able to communicate and possibly influence anyone. In 20 years, someone might interview him. He could write a book, etc. So two very different viewpoints. Mark, what's your take on that? And then I want to go to Gene. Well, let's start with the last one first. I, one of the things, I, I certainly understand that perspective, and and it's coming from someone who's who's in, in great pain. Um, all these people are. In a, it's, it's a terrible tragedy. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, he wouldn't be able to publish a book, I certainly think that, you know, that's an appropriate restriction for someone who's in prison, um, is that they, you know, not be able to do things like publish books and profit from it and so forth. But, you know, there's a flip side to the argument that if he gets the death penalty, that there can be no more communication. And that is that, um, you know, I think there's something that we can learn from people who have committed these crimes as well. Uh, you know, Tim McVeigh, who committed the Oklahoma City bombing, um, was executed, was a volunteer. He dropped all his appeals and was executed. And one of the things that, that we lost when he was executed was the ability over time to better understand the mind of someone who would do that. Um, one of the things that, that is remarkable about Gene's um, dialogue with David Biro is that because he didn't get the death penalty, because now, you know, 25 years later, he is alive, they can have a conversation and she can discover how his mind worked, what happened there. And just to, just to, just to clarify, because that's the first time we've heard the name of the killer, David Biro, of, of the killer of her sister and brother-in-law. Right. Um, and, and so there is, there's a societal cost to losing access to, uh, you know, to, to people who um, do these terrible things, because we have an interest as a whole to understand how that happens so that we can stop people before they get to that point. So, Gene, what did you learn about the mind of this particular killer that might be to the benefit of society? Well, first, let me say that Mark is so right. And, you know, I'm glad that he brought up the Oklahoma City bombing because it just had the anniversary of that a few days ago. And one of the things that happened in the aftermath of that, you know, when McVeigh was executed, is that the victim's family members were invited to either be present in person to witness his execution, and then when there was not enough room in the physical location to watch it via closed-circuit television from another location. And, you know, not as many people as they thought wanted to do that, but as several hundred people did. And when they came out and said, you know, were asked, are you satisfied now? Do you feel better? All of them said no, that they they didn't. And partly it was because he had never said he was sorry. And the other is that he hadn't suffered enough. Well, we killed him before he had an opportunity to develop remorse and be sorry and express that sorrow. One of the things that I think is incensing the people of Boston is this idea that this young man, Jokar Tsarnaev, just, you know, he kills a bunch of people and ruins the lives of others, you know, takes their limbs and then goes out to a convenience store and buys milk. That That's how, you know, callous he is. And so what could be profoundly healing for the people there, you know, would be for him to do what my sister's killer did, which is over time, slowly, over decades, to develop empathy, to think about what he had done, to feel great regret about it, and then to, you know, respond to, to me and to meet with me and, and let me know exactly how much he regrets what he did. What do you think caused the change 
and and why is that in some way healing? You know, one thing I've noticed is you, Gene, have not used the word closure, which so many people use. And I think, you know, I, I, I always trying to get my arms around some, some of this pain and suffering. I, I don't know if closure is a word that people ever truly experience in a case like this, but you tell us. Well, first I'll talk about change and then about closure. I mean, Mark talks about this a lot that, you know, he says that people don't change on the spot, that you don't pull up at a stoplight behind the car in front of you and read the bumper sticker on the back and say, oh, you're right. You're right about that. I've completely changed my mind. Change happens over time. And it happens from, you know, different influences that come in your life. And that's what happened with this young man, you know, who killed my sister. You know, it was from reading. It was from a relationship that had broken. It's from witnessing other crimes on television and thinking, wow, I did that. I did something like that. And so it it was a lot over time. And then I think my finally reaching out to him is the thing that, that, you know, tipped him over the edge of, you know, being able to reach out to me and and confess to me and, and express sorrow and regret. As for closure, I don't want to close the love I had for Nancy and Richard and their baby. I want it to live in me and motivate me. And and Mark, when you hear that, uh, what's your experience? You know, in, in just your study, because I know you're you're an expert on on federal sentencing guidelines, and obviously the purpose behind them. What should be? What is the appropriate goal here? What is the goal that we as a nation have decided we want? Or uh, clearly, there's a split on that. But how does that fit into this whole this whole case and the death penalty? Yeah, I mean, there there is there are different opinions on on what the goals are, you know, whether it is straight up retribution. And certainly there's a lot of academic discourse about that. But the way people who aren't academics talk about it is probably more important. And it's and it's different. Um, you know, you hear people talk about the need for, for closure. Uh, often those are the people who are seeking retribution, haven't been through that experience themselves. Um, you know, one unforgettable experience that, that Gene and I had was – um, we were speaking at, at Belmont University in Tennessee, and uh, Alberto Gonzalez was teaching there. And while we were there, we sat down with him for a while, and he asked what we were doing there. And we, we said, well, we're here doing a death penalty project. And and he said, oh, so you're, you're death penalty opponents, you know, something like that. And and he said with a real edge, you know, you you people wouldn't feel that way if it was your mother or your brother or your sister or your your dad who got killed. And that was the wrong thing to say to Gene. Um, and it was interesting how that changed the, the entire tone of things. I'm not someone who's had that kind of loss. And so when I talk about the goals that we seek in sentencing, uh, someone who was killed, um, I, I have a lot of deference to the people who are the victim's family members. And, and that's something I've learned uh you know, in the, the past five years to, to be much more attentive to. But I also have to recognize that in that community, the people who have suffered that loss, there's a real diversity of beliefs and ideas that, um, yes, there are some people that will talk about closure. So here's here's a quote, and if you were to meet her today, Liz Norden, um, whose sons, they survived, but they each lost a leg in the bombing. She supports the death penalty. She wants it. Very simple statement. I want to see justice for my boys. Is, is there anything, and, and now take us back again, you know, is there anything in the death penalty, and you're both coming at this clearly 
in, in part from your legal background, but also motivated by your Christian faith. And, and there is no, am I correct? I mean, there, one cannot say the Christian perspective because there are many Christian perspectives. Uh, is there a Christian perspective that you've heard in your studies and in your life experience that would say, yes, Liz Norton, this would be justice for your boys to put this man to death? Uh, you know, Michael, I think definitely there are people that, that are going to say that, and they're going to say that from a Christian perspective. And very often they're going to rely on, uh, you know, an Old Testament teaching, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Um, but in the, the New Testament, when we have Jesus teaching us directly, um, one of the, you know, that, that he quotes that, he says, verily you say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, but I tell you, and that's when he says, the the, um, the entire passage about turning the other cheek, that if someone uh, takes things from you to give them more. Um, and so clearly there's, there's, there's a message within Christianity that because of the presence of Christ is going to be different than we see in other faiths. Now, in terms of, you know, outside of faith, is there justice and a proportionality between the harm done and the price that's exacted? Uh, yes, but that's one of the many things that Christianity, and I'd add many other faiths, um, including uh, Judaism, challenge. And so, Gene, uh, you know, you, you might be, in, uh, again, personally, in an even better position to speak to somebody like Liz Norton, who has seen her, you know, so much suffering uh, in her two sons and wants justice for them. So what would you say directly to her? Well, first, I would say how terribly sorry I am for her loss. I, as a mother, I cannot imagine the suffering of seeing both your children suffer. So I can understand her rage and her um, desire for justice. I used to think that the only justice I could have for my sister's life um, was for the rest of her killer's life to be spent in prison. But now I see that the only real justice is for him to be found, for him to be redeemed and restored. That is the only thing big enough for me. I mean, again, going back to Timothy McVeigh, when he was executed, you know, that one life was supposed to pay for the 168 lives he took, including 19 precious children that were blown to bits in this daycare on the first floor of the federal building in Oklahoma City. And it's it's not equivalent. It can't begin to pay for it. And I think that imposing suffering and bloodshed and death is something that is never going to achieve a goal as as lofty and and momentous as justice. So, Gene, let, let me ask you this: it Is I mean, there is the chance that if you spare somebody the death penalty, they will never come around to express any remorse or any insight into their action, and. You know, if that is the outcome, how would you address uh, how would you address the, the the relatives of the victims? I mean, they they might spend their whole lives waiting for that. Uh, I'm not suggesting, and you have to tell me how much you thought about that. But if you had gone in to your sister's killer, and to this day he had not expressed some sense of remorse, would that have even intensified the pain beyond what you had felt initially? You know, one of the things that Mark talks about is this. First from Scripture, Micah 6, 8, about what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. 
and that there's this tension between justice and mercy. It can't be all justice or it's too harsh. It can't be all mercy and it's too lenient. But there's that third part that gets overlooked a lot of the time, and that's the humility. And one thing he also talks about is the fact that of many issues that Americans and Christians, you know, disagree about, the death penalty is one that we actually see Jesus directly encountering in Scripture. One of the witnesses I call in our trial, our trial of Jesus, is a woman who's not even given a name, but she appears in John chapter 8, and she's caught in the act of a capital crime, and that crime was adultery. And the law of Moses said that she should be stoned to death. And she was taken before Jesus by a bunch of people with rocks in their hands ready to throw them, saying to Jesus, you know, here's this woman caught in the act, guilty, you know, of this thing that's punishable by death. You know, what do you say? And what he said was not that she didn't deserve to die. What he said was that we didn't deserve to kill her. He said, let those without sin cast the first stone. And so, you know, what... I would say to the relatives of the victims is that I am not God. We are not God. We don't know what can become of this human being, this young man, Jogar Sarnayev. We don't know what he will become. But because we don't know that, we don't have the power right now to say, we are going to cut short your life. We're going to throw you away as if you were garbage. And yet whatever he might become, it sounds like you, you would both agree, I assume, that he should never be released from prison, or am I wrong? Um, I, I, I can't speak for Gene, but I know that I'm comfortable with that sentence as an alternative to the death penalty. So am I. You were a prosecutor, Mark. Uh, and uh, Tell me, what, what kinds of cases did you prosecute, uh, and how did you get so interested in the death penalty? Sure. I was a federal prosecutor in Detroit from 1995 to 2000. And so being in Detroit in the 90s, there was a lot of crack cases. Um, but I also had bank robberies, uh, you know, fair number of counterfeitings. I had an, an immigrant smuggling case involved. Uh, it was a human trafficking case involving uh, Chinese uh, women. Um, so I saw I saw a lot of different things. Now, you know, the federal death penalty is pretty rarely used relative to the states, and that's one of the anomalies about the case in Boston right now, is that there you have a state that doesn't have the death penalty, but we have a death penalty case going on because it's in federal court on a federal charge. Um, and so, it's you know, my interest in the death penalty didn't come out of having prosecuted death penalty cases. Uh, that sent me in a different direction in, in examining crack laws, but that's another story. Uh, you know, my interest in the death penalty really came from a, a single moment, which was I was in uh, one Sunday morning when I was teaching at Baylor, living in Waco, Texas. I got up, flipped open the paper, um, and there was a story about an execution that week. And in the lead, which is fairly typical, they described the last meal that that defendant had. Uh, and, you know, it, it, there's a real fascination with that. Um, when when uh, some people are, are executed, um, you know, that's what's on the front page. And so then I went to church that same day. And it happened to be the, the, the week that we take communion. And so I... Uh, took the communion in my hand, the, the wafer, and I realized that this was a celebration of the last meal of a man who was going to be executed. 
And, and there was something about that that just knocked me flat. And it started me thinking about, well, what does it say that you know, here in Waco, Texas, in this Baptist church, I'm surrounded by people who support the death penalty, yet at the center of this faith is a wrongful execution. And, uh, you know, the things that went wrong, uh, for example, you know, the, the political wins, um, the, the overpassionate prosecutor, the use of an informant, they were all there. And the closer I looked, the more fascinating it was. So, so if, 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 if you were in Boston, you know, if you were a federal prosecutor today and you were assigned and you were in Boston and you were assigned to advocate for the death penalty for this, for Tsarnaev, would you, would you just, is there a choice? Would you turn it down? I would turn that down, yeah. And, and frankly, if it meant that I had to leave that job, I would leave that job. Um, because to me, it is a, a matter of faith and an important one. So, so let's get into, be, before we end the conversation, because you know, it really is what, what's so fascinating about your book and your exercise is there's, there's, there's such an emphasis on the procedural aspect. Because in terms of comparing the people, I mean, both of you seem to, to, to be on the side of, you know, let, let's look at let's look at the victims and the survivors of particular crimes as much as the person who committed them. Cause clearly there's, you know, there couldn't be two different people from Jesus and Tsarnaev, right? They're not in, uh, you know, they're, they're the opposite ends of the spectrum, uh, you know, and yet it's the procedure that seems to, in many ways have captured you, Mark. So tell us more about the procedures at the time and what you notice are similar procedures and if it's just a procedural matter, can't we just rectify the procedures right now? If there's a procedural problem with how we how we carry out sentencing phases. Yeah, and I don't think my examination of the procedure is what takes me to the point of saying, uh, you know, the death penalty, it, you know, it can never work. It definitely points to some problems that we have today, and and one of them is that you know through the entire process there was a um, a mob of people chanting execute him, and. That that is something that that we see today. I mean, I remember when I lived in Texas, when there was an execution in Huntsville, there was a party outside. There were people there with signs and and and, and tailgating, um, a, a celebration. It was the the modern equivalent of the people. And that, that was what year? Execute him. That would have been in the uh, you know between 2000 and, and 2010 is when I was in Texas. So, so this is really fascinating because you really can't have almost a, a more different state in terms of the attitudes towards the death penalty than Massachusetts, where, as you said, they don't have the the state uh, doesn't have a death penalty, and uh, public opinion polls show that the majority of people, even in this case, uh, a cer- certainly a plurality of people, do not want the death penalty in this or any case. Um, and so you don't have this, you know, this sort of lustfulness, right, for that, that you that you witnessed for, you know, for vengeance, per se. Right. And, and you know, one thing that is at the, the core of this discussion is that uh, across the country, there's very different attitudes. Um, you know, Gene and I have done the trial of Jesus in 11 different states, mostly in death penalty states. And uh, we try to do it where we can in a place like Oklahoma City, where the majority of people in our audience are going to be for the death penalty, because that's who we have to speak to. 
Um, it doesn't do much. I mean, both of us have been to a lot of death penalty meetings or rallies where, you know, we're all against the death penalty already, and that's not convincing anyone. Or so let me, so, so let me ask both of you. Do, do people get, I mean, there must be people who get furious with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that they'll say in, in real anger, especially within, within a church, is, are you telling me that this guy in prison, you know, this, this murderer, that we should see him the same way we see Jesus? And the hard answer to that for a Christian is yes, um, because one of the things that, that Jesus taught is that uh, when you see the person that, that is hungry and you feed him, you feed me. And also that when you visit those in prison, you visit me. And so it's not my choice to equate Christ to the least of those in our society, the ones who are most strongly condemned. It's a Christ's own invitation that I do that. And, and Gene, can you tell me, it's a, what's the most furious interaction or the most furious reaction you have ever had and had to address from an individual in one of these trials of Jesus exercises? Oh, I had a woman come up to me. I write about this in my book. And she said to me, you must not have loved your sister very much. And I said, excuse me? And she said, I, I have a brother and I love him. And if somebody murdered him, I would never forgive them. And what did you say to her? I always try to, you know, respond with love, with love and concern. I mean, you know, sometimes people come forward with, you know, deep-seated anger. Um, there, there was a, a woman that I encountered in some clemency hearings. Her brother and sister-in-law were murdered. And she was shaking with rage and saying that she could no longer say the words of the Lord's Prayer because it said, you know, the part about forgiving others as we've been forgiven and that she could never forgive them. And that every day she woke up wondering why the murderers of her family members were still breathing. I thought, oh, she's in this prison of her own hatred. You know, the, I'm sure those two men who took the lives of her family members aren't waking up every day thinking about her. And so not only had they taken her family members from her, they'd taken away her peace of mind, her ability to say this prayer of her faith. And then I wonder, uh, I don't know what their faith is, but, but and I haven't read it enough, but uh, again, from this Boston Globe article, Karen and John Odom, um, let me see, uh, she and her husband, John, who had arteries in his legs severed by the shrapnel and the Boston bombing, have they want life in prison, but... This isn't the kind of reason that would, in, in, from your perspective, free them. The quote was, we want to see him rot in prison the rest of his life. We're not against the death penalty. We just think the death penalty is too good for him. We'd rather see him in jail forever. What would you say to Karen and John Odom, both of you? Well, you know, the first thing you have to say to someone like that is, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> that that what you hear in that statement is fresh and real and deep pain. Um, you know that that when someone is speaking from something like like the experience they've been through, then logic or reason or theological arguments are not going to have much of an effect at this point. Um, you know, one of the things I think would be great for Jean to address is is one of her good friends who lost his daughter in the Oklahoma City bombing. And, uh, you know, he 
confronts this all the time, and it's remarkable the way that he addresses it. Yeah, his name is Bud Welch, and his only daughter, Julie Marie, who was about my sister's Nancy's age, uh, was an interpreter in the Social Security Administration in the Murrah Federal Building. And when Bud saw pictures on the news of the building blown up, he knew right away that Julie was dead. And at first, he wanted death, the death penalty for Timothy McVeigh, you know, was drinking and you know, smoking four packs a day and, you know, just in a, a, a fit of rage. And then the more he learned about McVeigh and his reasons for doing the bombing, which was basically vengeance, he realized that the death penalty was just a perpetuation of that vengeance. So Bud goes all over the place, and one of the places he went was Connecticut. And Connecticut was debating whether to get rid of its death penalty. And the biggest proponent of keeping the death penalty was a man named Dr. Pettit, whose wife and two daughters were brutally raped and murdered, set on fire, and killed. So he lost his entire family in this horrific incident, and he wanted the death penalty for the two men who did it. And the news cameras all came to Bud and said, you know, well, what do you say to Dr. Pettit? You know, you, you're against the death penalty and Dr. Pettit's for it. And Bud said, leave the man alone. He has had a horrific loss. People heal at their own rate. They come to peace in their own way. You know, I was for the death penalty for a while. I'm not, you know, for it anymore. That was my journey. And I'm not going to say anything to him except, you know, how terribly sorry I am. Let, let, let me finish this up by asking you both because, uh, you know, obviously this case is such a high profile case and it's an extreme, although it's an extreme kind of crime that we're dealing with more and more often. But in terms of your day to day legal practice, uh, Gene, you're a, a public defender. Give me a sense of of what your experiences are these days in the legal system. Who are you defending and and what have you learned since you've become a public defender? You know, I'm defending mostly young men of color. That's mostly who my clients are. And most of them have come from terrible backgrounds of, you know, abuse and neglect, um, some mental illness. It is. It can be heartbreaking and, um, and challenging. But I think that one of the things that Mark's book really um, inspired me to do is to see in each of them the face of Jesus Christ. And Mark, Mark, I know you, in fact, you just wrote a piece about it recently, but you've, you've got some interesting cases that, that you know, as a law professor, you've been picking up. But t- tell me about your latest. Yeah, what I'm, what I'm focusing on uh, right now is clemency, that the uh, pardon power that's in the Constitution has really fallen into disuse and disrepute because of the way the last few presidents have used it. Um, but now we've got 5,000 people in federal prison. Um, who were sentenced under the 100-to-1 crack laws that, you know, really enhanced the sentences against crack, who would be out now under current sentencing law. Um, And so I work with my students on those cases to have those those people released from prison. Um, It's something that is consistent with the faith imperative that I talk about when we talk about the death penalty as well, that... um, you know, in the Constitution, it bugs me when people say, oh, well, you know, the Constitution is from the Ten Commandments or is Christian values, because, you know, pretty clearly that's not what the, the framers intended. But there is there is that one value that's so strong within the faith, and I would note within other faiths as well, of mercy that is also in the Constitution. And it's a real tragedy that that is one that 
has fallen into disuse because it's one that is uh, most consistent with our common values. So, so before we end up here, uh, is there anything I've missed or any insights that you guys have uh, you know, as you're following the case that we should just, I mean, as you follow the case over the next few weeks, what are you going to be looking for? Sort of telltale signs uh, that it could go one way or the other or that, boy, that's, you know, they're, they're doing it at least the way they should be doing it. Well, I can, I can say this, that one, one thing that I will be watching to see if it comes out is the idea that this is someone uh, who is a zealot, you know, someone who viewed himself as a, a martyr, and at least at the point that they were doing these things. And, you know, the death penalty doesn't work very well against people who want to be martyrs. If we're trying to deter others by the way that we treat this defendant, um, well, if we're talking about potential martyrs saying we're going to kill you, isn't much of a deterrent. And I'm I'm going to be real interested to see if that argument comes out. And Gene, and you know, obviously, just to just for the audience, clearly this is not a you know a debate pro anti death penalty. I want to get your guys' perspective on this, and I've been fascinated talking to you, Mark, over the years, and also Gene reading your book. But Gene, if uh, you know, if you had to go to the defense attorney. Uh, and say, look, you know, if, here's here's what I would advise you tell, you say to the jury, uh, and who you would bring as witnesses, and how you would question them. Is there a, what guidance would you give, especially based on your experience being? the defense attorney for Jesus in, in churches across America. Yeah, well, I'm very familiar with the work of his defense attorney, and I wouldn't presume to tell her anything. She's the best of the best. Um, but I am going to be very interested to see um, what the defense does. I know that in Illinois, years ago, there was a massacre of employees at a Brown's Chicken restaurant. Small amount of money taken, no need to kill the employees. They were all rounded up and, and shot. Mass murder. And so there was this outcry that if any case deserved the death penalty, it was this one. And a veteran criminal defense lawyer, Steve Richards here, gathered together many family members of the victims for a press conference on the front steps of the criminal courts building in Chicago. And one woman stood up and said, as if she was speaking to Juan Luna, one of the defendants who had committed these murders. You took my mother's life. You showed her no mercy. But we will show you mercy because that's who she was. That's what she stood for. And so I hope to see that in the defense case. Yeah, Michael, if I could just follow up one thing that's important to note there is that Illinois no longer has the death penalty. And when Governor Quinn got rid of the death penalty and set a pen down to paper and by signing the signature uh, ended the death penalty in that state. He then gave that pen to Gene Bishop. Well, we're going to end on the power of mercy. And, and you've given me an idea because I am going to follow up on this. And for a future episode, uh, I want to talk to some psychologists and psychiatrists uh, who have dealt with patients suffering from grief, and is is there literature out there? Because uh, you've experienced it yourself, Gene. But is there is there evidence out there? Have you looked into it on the healing power of showing mercy when in a situation where most people would feel none is deserved? I don't know. That's a wonderful question. I'd love for you to do that. That's something I'd love to hear. I'm going to see if there's any research on it, and if there is, uh, we'll get it out there. But uh, we will we will end on the power of mercy and. Uh, 
Uh, I thank you both, uh, Mark Osler, author of Jesus on Death Row, Gene Bishop, uh, uh, public defender and author of the new book, Change of Heart. I thank you both for joining me on this Wavemaker conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. If you like what you've heard on this episode, you can subscribe to Wavemaker Conversations on iTunes, and you can always find this podcast on the new CBS podcasting platform, Play It. That's play.it. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <laughs> Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.